Hello everyone and welcome to the Desk Adaptation Podcast, a bi-weekly book club where we choose one classic book and compare and contrast it against its cinematic adaptations. I'm your host, Nicolo Grasso, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Yuan Gledo. How are you doing, Yuan? You know what? I often say, like, oh, I'm doing terrible or oh, I'm doing good, but for the first time, I'd say ever, I'm actually genuinely doing, like, well. Like, just uh... apart from, you know, losing my hearing. Um, Which is no small thing from one year. Easy come, easy go, as they say. But I actually feel like good. I feel relaxed. I feel just satisfied. Which is, I imagine, is going to be fucking ruined by this because we're going about to talk about bones and all. But (laughs) I'm sure it's uh, no. I feel quite mellow, which is new for me because you know what I'm like. You know, it's just about stress. But I just feel so relaxed. Yeah. Uh, that makes me so happy to hear, man. It's I'm feeling good too, uh, feeling better. Like for listeners who don't know, this episode is coming out one week later than expected because I managed to get jolly good old COVID <laughs> in the beginning of October, so I was knocked out vocally for two weeks straight. Um, but we're back. We're back. I'm, I'm happy to be back here to talk about some quality, some quality cinema. Maybe some quality writing, mm, or maybe not. We'll see. Um, Please don't make me spit out my coffee. I'm trying to enjoy that in my mellow state. It's, it, it, it is a special, special occasion um, to be back here and to talk about something a little bit newer, a little bit different, just like we did with Blonde last month. But of course, as always, before we get into this conversation, if you're listening to this, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Anchor, your grandmother's basement, wherever you are, whatever you're listening to, just you know, consider dropping a like, sending us an email, subscribing, following, uh, message by pigeons. I don't know, whatever rocks your boat, we, we're always available. We're always free to connect and we hope to see you soon because we have a, a good few episodes coming your way very, very soon, especially one for Halloween that we've already recorded with a special guest that was an absolute blast. So stay tuned for all of that. And now, without further ado, let's talk about Bones and All. Dad! You didn't. When the cops get here, you have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Are there lots of us? I don't actually meet many others. Why did you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. Big disclaimer before we jump into Bones and All. We are going full on spoilers with the book and the film of Bones and All. And as you can imagine, a story about cannibalism. This is going to get graphic. <laughs> this is not going to get uh, particularly joyful and happy and, and clean and family friendly. So explicit content ahead. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. But now, Bones and All, a novel, was written in 2015 by Camille DeAngelis. Camille DeAngelis, who is a, a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator, um, which already sets things up in an interesting way. She wrote this novel, which is a 
cannibal road trip coming of age story about this young girl, Maureen. Uh, she's a cannibal. She gets uh, dropped off by her mother when she's 16. She mother just basically says, like, you know what? This is too much for me. You keep killing people left and right. Uh, see ya. <laughs> Peace out. And so Maureen decides, you know what? I'm going to try and find my father. I'm, I've never really met him. Maybe I got this, this feeling, this need, this desire, this obsession, this craving from him. So let me look for him. And she embarks on a road trip that makes her meet some dangerous individuals, some welcoming individuals, other fellow cannibals. Maybe she falls in love. Maybe she has some great losses. Who knows? Yuan. <laughs> Hello. What did you think about the Bones and All novel? The Bones and All novel. What did I think about the Bones and All novel? <laughs> I thought it was terrible. I thought it was really... You know, we, we've... We've done about 20 episodes of this over the past two years, which is yeah. my thing. This is the worst book we've done, without a doubt. Um, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, without question. A lot of that comes not from, surprisingly, not from the thematics and the message at the heart of this, but it does you know, balance out in a way that is inevitable with people that write for the sake of a message rather than the sake of a story. Mm-hmm. The main issue with Bones and All is that it's just not that well written. It's just not very good. And I'm sure we'll get into the sort of nitty-gritty details of that, but the bulk of it is a very dull read. A very It's amazing to say that, considering that the content is a cannibal road trip that <laughs> essentially embarks on... You know, the messages within the book are really worth exploring. There are better ways of doing it. Like, there are notes of this female empowerment that comes through with the lead character that are just really quite remarkable. Mm. However, the writing itself doesn't really remark on anything unique. It doesn't really do anything either for the message it's trying to display so obviously or for the sort of people that are there just to be scared. There's Mm -hmm. nothing horrific described despite it being a very graphic place to go. Mm -hmm. Um, all of that stems from bad writing, just plain and simple. Having said that, I am actually interested in reading uh, Camille DeAngelis's nonfiction, which is mm. um, Life Without Envy, Ego Management for Creative People, which uh, I imagine I need. So I may give it a go. <laughs> that might, will probably be a better read than, than Bones and All. Mm. Um, I honestly, I completely agree with what you said, that this is easily the worst book we've talked about, dare I say, the only bad book we've talked about, because we've covered a whole bunch of classics and newer releases. But still, like, man, this is... This was rough. This was really, really rough. I have so many problems with this book, but primarily, my main problem is I don't know who this is for. Like, I was yeah. reading it, and it's it, it kind of connects to what you just said about... You know, it's... It's a story of cannibalism, but it's not particularly graphic to cater to a horror crowd or a gorehound crowd. But neither is it particularly, uh, I, I don't, I don't know, like light and romantic enough to appeal to young adults because it does feel more like a YA novel more than anything to me. Um, with the road movie structure, the constant changing characters in here, 
this fast pacing, it, it feels like it's tailored for them. It's made for like like people of Maureen's age because she's I want to say like 15, 16 or something like that. Like she is underage uh, in this book. <laughs> but then like uh, I'm so baffled by this and like help me out here as well. Like the structure of this book. Like it it it, it goes the first few chapters just kind of recounting Maureen's early years. And there are so many confusing bits in this. And not even just confusing, but just repetitive. There are so many instances in here of Maureen goes somewhere, meets up with person. Person is a male. She strikes up this weirdo friendship with them. Male wants to have sex with her. She eats them up. And she eats them up completely. You could even say bones and all. Don't do, okay, right. I knew you were <laughs> going to do that. Um, I really wish I could help you in understanding this book, but a lot of it stems from just not knowing where the story's going, despite it being really obvious at the same time. It's like you just said there, it's that cycle of, you know, girl meets boy, girl and boy fall in love, girl eats boy, girl moves on. Which is, you know, an interesting structure to take, especially in if the messaging is right, which I think is the issue here, is that Camille has written with the message first rather than the story. If the story had developed into that message, it would have been a phenomenal piece of magic surrealism that engages really well with its structure and its pacing because the story is at first hand. Mm -hmm. Instead, what you get is a piece that hopes its message will do a lot of the heavy lifting, which in part it does. I, I really do think that the sort of repetitive structure depends on the fact that people are going to be drawn into this story for its for its reading essentially for its for its messaging mm. which is fine because i think you know g- good messaging is re- a really big part of storytelling i just don't think it should be the, the primary objective if if your work can't move people without being obvious then it's not exactly good you know mm. it's it's not something that flows well it's not something that articulates its actual message clearly because it's writing for the message rather than for an audience. And you can tell it's very underbaked. The characters are very simplistic. There's just some offensively dull moments throughout this where the dialogue just kind of, it's filling, it's filling time. It's filling pages with writing for no particular reason. And it's neither scary nor graphic. Like you touched on earlier with, with cannibalism in mind, it's such a graphic, horrible subject that is, depicted so brutally elsewhere and stuff like you know i mean i guess the obvious example is science of the lambs and the writing that comes around that i think we covered mm-hmm. that didn't we very early on we did red um, dragon yeah red dragon that's it yeah because i had to watch edward norton throw knives at anthony <laughs> hopkins or whatever um classic scene classic scene unlike bones and all which is just sort of a, a set piece after set piece book it it, mm. it kind of it, it, it's really clunky and the, the escape of that is, okay, it's clunky, but it might be quite strong in what it's doing, what it's embarking on, what it's showcasing, if it is clunky. As it turns out, it's just showing the same thing over and over again. It's just the relationship between Marin and whoever she's bumped into at that period. And the only reason she bumps into them is to progress the story, which is only there to progress a message that Camille obviously identifies with and believes in. I have no issue, I have no issue with the, the belief in the message or the message itself. I have issue with how it's structured and how it is presented. It's presented rather matter-of-factly and very, very obviously to the point where it leaves no room for 
sort of debate really it's it's very black or white it is if you eat flesh you're a bad fella um i'd say that having eaten a salami sandwich about 20 minutes before starting this recording i i don't have any issue with the actual merit of oh you shouldn't eat meat i guess okay but i don't think that means i'm a cannibal if that's what she's inferring which it does seem like she's inferring that it's it's an interesting one because the most baffling thing to me when I when I started reading the book, I don't know about your copy, but my copy had the acknowledgements right up in the in the beginning, and I read them, and the, the author basically just starts out by saying, "Yeah, this is a metaphor for cannibalism and veganism. Like you know, cannibals and vegans, you know, they're they're, they're linked together in some way." And people were just confused when they when they said I was writing this, but hey, here you are, and thank you to these people. Like what, the, <laughs> what <laughs> are you really explaining the metaphor of your book? Um, I, so by, um, by the likes of it, it sounds like you see the character of Maureen and the other cannibals as being pro-meat? Yeah, I always thought it was quite, you know, Bones and all was quite critical of meat eaters. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're no better than cannibals. They're no better than sort of people that will take anything they can to progress and that they can't stop themselves. It's like an addiction to, to, to eating good food, or in this case, mm-hmm. people. Um what did you think? What did you think the opposite? I kept going back and forth between it being because 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 we are following Maureen and we are in her state of mind. And for the entirety of the book, I was just wondering, like, okay, is this supposed to be like you said, like she is a carnivore, a literal carnivore in the in the worst possible way, something that she cannot control, and therefore this is anti. Well, I don't want to say it's anti-cannibal, but like you know, it's it's like cannibalism as pro pro meat. But then I, like, kind of halfway through the book, I started reading it in the opposite way. I started seeing it as the cannibal is actually the vegan. The cannibal oh. is someone who eats something that's seen as disgusting, as horrible. How can you do that? But it comes perfectly natural. It comes perfectly normal. Uh, every interaction that she has with other cannibals, they try to make it seem more. Um, they make it more relatable for Maureen. They make it seem like something that you know, like if we stick together and like this is what we do. There's there's a lot of people like us, and we have to keep it hidden because it's kind of shameful. And that's how I was reading it, especially considering the ending. Yeah. Oh, which we'll get to the ending in a second. But just that's how I was reading it. But also, they are cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> it goes no, back to what I, you were saying. Like, I really like that though. It's I, it's it's yeah. weird. I don't know. No, it's I, I think it's regard it's essentially the other end of the spectrum to, to what I thought, but then you realise Bones and all is very black and white. It's either a criticism of oh, meat yes. eaters or people that are saying we're not meat eaters, we're ostracized and a trek like cannibals or people that are not involved in the regular world. Obviously it wouldn't work if, you know, instead of a Sunday roast, Marin has a like a, a broth and some mm-hmm. spinach that doesn't have the impact. So to sort of be reactionary and hook the attention, the the obvious illusion, regardless of whether it's representation of meat eater or vegan, is that cannibals are very much looked down upon in society. In civilized society, we we you tend to say no to cannibals. It's the ultimate some taboo. Sort of, well, unless there's been some sort of plane crashing a mountain in the eighties, <laughs> that's allowed. But other than that, regardless of what its intention is, it's always like it—it it, it is a taboo. It's um, and, and 
the the issue is it's that like we've just said we we've given two readings of the book there they are the only two you can really get what what else is it meant to mean what else can you explore other than oh it, it, it's meat eaters she doesn't like meat eaters or it's vegans she doesn't like how vegans are treated it, it's all about treatment and i think there's there's a, there's a certain irony ab- absolutely in in the fact that if if she wants us to i imagine she wants us to care for Marin. i find that yeah, very difficult i'd say so um if she wants us to care for Marin, then she's either depicted her as a meat eater and found it hard to match that with her message or she's depicting her as a vegan ostracized and is then piling on the claim that vegans are ostracized for i think a bulk of people just don't care mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of those things where it's like you know you go out to a restaurant and you see people eating vegetables i'm not going to flip the table and go what are you doing you're no better than a cannibal kind of just nonplussed you know i i don't have to have meat with every meal which i know i'm going wildly off topic but it's kind of like you no, know, yeah, yeah. all the cereal with a bit of oat milk you know does that make me a cannibal does it make me does it make me vegan well it, it did make me while i was reading it i was actually thinking about uh a vegan colleague that i had mm. last year um and seeing her struggle in trying to be vegan yeah. in a world of primarily meat eaters, not even just meat, but, you know, like eggs in everything and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and all those things. Like, uh, I'd go mental know. if I couldn't eat eggs. Like, cheese. cheese. I've had vegan cheese. Vegan cheese is actually disgusting. Like, I've, I've got <laughs> real, real sympathy for people that have to eat vegan cheese. Like, not just because if they're a vegan, but like dietary requirements, like people are lactose intolerant. My, yeah. my mate's lactose intolerant. They will power through a cheese pizza because it's the alternative. It's chalk. It's horrible. <laughs> but there, there are certain like vegan foods like uh, Linda McCartney's mushroom like meatloaf things. Delicious, fantastic. I, I think anything that's vegan but that's primarily made through vegetables. Yeah, it's beautiful. unbelievable. It's, um, there's a lot of like mushroom fusion stuff that's just so so nice, and it's because it's organic, it's fresh, and it's really delicious. But Good, At the yeah. same time, I don't want to just eat that. I've got to have a varied palate. Like sometimes I've got to take a bite out of someone's arm, like Marin does. Yeah, yeah. and also <laughs> I, I will say, speaking of vegan and food and all that, just I don't know if you've ever had corn, like the Q corn, corn. Oh yeah, corn's lovely. Yeah, I I remember getting corn sausages like when yeah. I was in uni. And I had them three times. The first time they were good. Mm-hmm. Second time suspicious. Mm-hmm. The third time I couldn't get past two bites. Yeah, that was like it's those a... because it's like a fungus. It's like a ma- ma- macro protein. Yeah, pretty much. So it's like something the, like the, that. The proteins of vegetables and organic materials <laughs> meshed into a sausage. Um, and I, I can't knock them because I used to eat them all the time. Like my my mum used to be a vegetarian. Recently, ah. just started eating meat again. Um, <laughs> Like, 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 spent seven years as a vegetarian, um, then sort of graduated. She fell off the wagon. <laughs> fell off the, she fell off the vegetable wagon. <laughs> she, um, no, she started eating, like, fish and, like, mm. became a pescatarian. And then we had a uh, steak night, and she was like, can, can, could you get me a steak? It's like, excuse me? I was like, yeah, sure. And it's, you know, I, I it, it's difficult to break down like veganism as a as a topic in any sort of art because it's it's such a varied um it's a, it's not a delicate issue like it, it it's a varied issue because mm. there are so many different reasons for wanting to do it like my mum did it for i think it was just like to to just see how it was and then she just stuck with it 
Hmm? Like there was no environmentalism behind it. There was no health benefit behind it. It was just I, I fancy giving it a go, and it was all right. Seven years done. More than fair. Any impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Say. It's like I I could probably like go without eating meat. There's enough variety, but I just like it. And I know that's selfish, but look, I've not got long left on this planet, and I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm not going to deprive myself of a. I've got a nice sirloin fridge. That's for Friday night. Finish oh. work at three. Grill that up. Braise it a little bit. Just sear the sides gently. Air fry some chips. Bit of mayonnaise on it. Oh man, that's I'll set you up for a night. That's a nice quiet. A glass of red wine. Beautiful. Well, this is making me hungry for dinner, which is in two hours. I wish it were oh, sooner. I'm absolutely starving. I don't know what's on the cards for tonight. Today I had, you know, I had a really nice loaf of cheesy bread with salami on it. But it's like, Ooh, again, nice. just to get us back on topic, it's kind of like, that's, is it frowned upon? Is Bones and All really saying that we're like either devilishly villainous for eating meat <laughs> or that we're not understanding an issue that's very central for some people in environmental circles. I always think of Joke in Phoenix mm. uh, and the documentary, the Dominion, is it called? About the, um, oh the cows my God, and the, the yes. life of the cow. Now, Oof. it's obviously disturbing and it's really horrible to see that. The difference between that and Bones and All is that Bones and All <laughs> has that message. It just has it at its core and it doesn't do anything else with it. There's a brutalism to it that is beyond disturbing. Um, but Bones and All doesn't really grasp that. It doesn't have that moment that'll make people realise, oh my god, this is really disturbing. Which is weird to say about a book that's all about cannibals, that it doesn't have that horror punch to it. It's yeah. shocking more than anything. It's tame. It's so tame. And the yeah. themes are muddled. And it's so hard to get behind any of the horror because it's like it opens up with basically two-year-old Maureen yeah. eating her nanny, eating her entire the nanny. whole thing. Like the yeah. the mother comes home and she's like, "Oh, where's the nanny? Oh my god, there's just a pool of blood." And then she finds, I don't know, like cartilage, a piece of the ear in in Maureen's mouth, something like that, just stuck between the teeth. And I'm just sitting there like, "This is a two-year-old. She just say that you a fool." grown human being like and in its entirety like an entire an entire human, an like, there's no rest like every time she eats someone she just then packs up the bloody clothes because that's the only thing she cannot eat the clothes and then just i mean i'd be quite full to be fair <laughs> i don't think i'd have room for a jacket it's a, it's a lot of people to eat but just it's ridiculous it's not even it doesn't even get particularly like you said it's not scary it's not even that disturbing it's just confusing no. like there's a point when and she starts spending time following this young guy, Lee, who's a relatively minor character compared to, yeah. the, to the film in the book. Um, and and he, he literally is like, oh, I'm just going to go like eat up this woman. And he lives in seven minutes. He just ate an entire girl up and then came back. And there is like this, this element that if we, if we want to look beyond the veganism, we can look at it through the lens of coming of age and also sexuality, yeah. because this is this is a prevalent element mm-hmm. in the book, the fact that she Maureen never has a relationship with anyone. She, at least she never consummates it in a more conventional sense, we could say. She does it in the cannibalistic sense. Um, and, and that's why she almost like builds, puts up barriers with Lee 
and with the other people that she meets because she knows that if she gets too close and she falls in love romantically and physically, yeah. she will lead them up. Like she cannot control her urge. That can be seen as the, as the veganism meat eater that we talked about, but also as just the pure sexuality of it. Which again, like I don't get it because at the end of the day, like in the final chapter of the book, she's just embracing this side of her that she's going to eat, eat every guy up where it's like yeah we're yeah. gonna have sex like ah, i'm just gonna eat you up just get ready man that's the ending of the book this is like uh, how, how am i supposed to see this camille is it is it good because i don't know because the way you portray it it seems like she's i don't know uh okay just just to kind of clarify things in my head like mm-hmm. on paper what she's doing is good because yes. she's embracing her own self she's accepting who she is in yeah. her entirety, she's proud. She's not really hiding it anymore. But what she's doing is killing another person and eating them up. I don't. Yeah, I don't <laughs> see. That's where the just... the analogy that she's sort of relying on falls to pieces a bit. Because I do again. It's my biggest issue with Bones and all is how frustrating it is. Yes. There are really, really good, promising ideas here. That I have no doubt in the right hands would work, even in Camille's hands would work. I don't know why we're on first name terms for this because I've tapped out and I've not actually looked at her name in a while. But <laughs> there is a quality there that can be adapted by a lot of people, where it's going to look at these messages more in touch, like the elements of the idea there, as you've just described. It's the the coming of age sexuality. Some of the the best writing. I think we talked about this on the Jarvis Cocker podcast all those months ago, mm-hmm. is that sexuality and coming of age in that sort of spectrum is very difficult to write. It's very difficult to make it look articulate, and it's very, very difficult to make it believable. I always think of Joe Abercrombie with the blade itself as being a horrific example of what not to write. It's very <laughs> primitive, it's very basic, and it's very stupid, just like his work. On the flip side of that, You've got people like Roland S. Howard or Peter Silberman or Marianne Faithful who can write about it with such defiance that it puts everything else to shame. Mm-hmm. And you, you think about songs like Sliding Through Life on Charm from Marianne Faithful or um, White Wedding from Roland S. Howard, that amazing cover. Um, and, and you think, surely these are the artists that should be talking about this. Because throughout Bones and All, there is, I think it's confusion. I do think it's confusion that Camille sort of troubles herself with it's having a good idea and then not knowing how to go about doing it and getting bogged down in this cannibalistic nature where on paper it is like you said very shocking very graphic stuff but then that shock ebbs away and instead it's often just a reminder that this is meant to be a message for something it doesn't feel natural it doesn't feel like it's exposing anything new it doesn't feel like it's oh no ratifying anything it just feels there and present and sort of disconnected almost from what she's actually trying to do which is a shame because it's such a promising subject and it's such (laughs) a promising premise um and a lot of my hate for this book comes from that sort of shortcoming just wasted potential wasted potential it's exactly that wasted potential and pointless twists (laughs) <laughs> Jesus, yeah. oh my god like we, we haven't mentioned him yet but there's the, there's the character of Sully 
this yeah. elderly cannibal that Camille just randomly meets when she's when she starts her, her journey. So he's mm-hmm. very friendly, you know, he has this massive cord of just, you know, people's hairs tying tied together, just endless this rope, sorry. Is <laughs> is a character, he's peculiar, but he's very supportive with her. And that was like as soon as he was introduced, I was like, this is just weird. I hope there's nothing like, you know, like a relationship or or connection between him and her. And then the fact that he keeps appearing throughout the book, I was like, oh, oh my God, is he going to be the father? And she doesn't know it. Is he going to be the father? And then it's like, no, he's the grandpa. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. It's, that, that was properly embarrassing. Like when it got to the end and it's the horror climax and he reveals that he was the grandpa all along and he's trying to kill her and he lies that he already killed Lee. Like all of that. It's, yeah. Oh, that, that's when he properly went from like kind of being bored with the book and kind of like, you know, ah, there's some good parts in here and there, but I'm mostly like not bored now. That's when I went in properly, like actively disliking it. Yeah. That's when I said like, the fuck you. <laughs> Why? Why do you need this? You don't because it has no thematic relevance whatsoever. It doesn't go into the scenes of the father and the endless cycle of violence you could have had. Even the whole like encounter between her and the father and there's the old relationship with the orderly that's taking care of him that kind of wants to be a cannibal but also is a bit afraid of it it all it, comes kind of nowhere I think it's what you said it's, it does. it's trying to tie everything together with the central message but by trying to do yeah. that it actually goes the opposite way and it just completely misfires the weird thing is as well is that <laughs> It's very fragmented and that feels almost intentional. So to try and tie it all together just feels like extra <laughs> backbreaking labor that just wasn't needed. If you've set out to sort of show segments of a life lived in a coming of age story, you don't have to link them together. It's it's the narrative doesn't have to rely solely on it being put together. You don't have to link Lee with um, Sully. You don't have to link everybody to each other. Which I think is the big weakness of this. It feels like a slight against the audience that they're not going to have the brain capacity to keep up with it. Where it's like, oh, but but how does this character factor in? Well, it's just a different period of time. That's it's very easy to understand that, and it it smacks of either just a simplicity from the writing for the message to make it clear as ever, mm-hmm. or just a lack of belief in the foundation of the story. Which, to be fair, was well put. There is little in this story to believe in but it's just horribly underbaked it just like you said it goes from being really boring to actively disliking and i've thought that there are certain films where it's like you know it's better to dislike something than be bored by it at least you're having a reaction to it true and ones and all for about all but the last 50 pages of it it's just very stagnant it's very flatlining it's very unmoving and then the last 50 pages just feel like an encapsulation of what was wrong with the previous 200 or so pages. It, it, it's it's beyond the pale of sort of poor writing, which is a shame because I'm sure we'll get into it um, on, on the actual thematics and the actual synopsis is a really good idea and it can be adapted well. Um, it sure can. It yeah. sure can. Especially with the, the fact that ultimately... Maureen eats Lee, but like yeah. he's doing well at the end. He's like, hey, I'm good. 
hey, I, I love you, and can we stay together and just save you from this crazy grandpa of yours? <laughs> let's let's hook up finally. And she's like, okay, fine. And then the morning after, it's like, oh, she's cleaning herself up from the blood and everything. It's like, why? Why? Why couldn't old. you have had like... the fact that they kind of, they are two there are two kindred spirits and they meet up together in this chaotic world and you could have had them stay together and actually have a positive relationship yeah. and she actually manages to not eat someone up for once. That's what I thought it was leading up to and then it's like, nope, she eats him up. I was like, oh, fuck. I truly thought it was going to be a really strong reflection of trust in a coming-of-age story or in a relationship, but <laughs> I, I don't think that thought ever crossed anybody's mind in reading this in the editing process and they just thought oh yeah she's got eaten because this is a cannibal story and it's a horror there's nothing like it feels very nuded considering it's meant to be like this horrific cannibalism like bones and all the act of eating an entire person including their bones is absolutely disgusting how does it feel so placid how does it feel so <laughs> boring how do you make that as a concept like really dull it's like i'll always, i'll never forgive the Friday the 13th films, which were just born for a really long streak. And then yep. all of a sudden, David Cronenberg makes a cameo and it's like, alright, let's jet off to space. You need that injection of adrenaline. Not in everything, but you need it at some point. And Bones and All is like, hold firm, we're going to get to the point of this story, we're going to get to the message. And then you close the book. And that's it. Nothing happened. Um, obviously, things do happen, but they never feel like they've got any prevalence on the story or that there is any impact in them. And the, the issue there is that if there's no impact in the words, there's no impact in the message. There is absolutely nothing in the message that is particularly impactful throughout. I wasn't, I closed the book or rather I closed the PDF tab and I thought there's nothing in here that has stuck with me. There is nothing that I'm going to go away and think about, mm-hmm. not because it's not an issue worth thinking about, but because it's just not written well. It's just not doing anything to progress a conversation that is probably worth having. Um, and that's the real detriment to this book. It's beyond it being just an uninteresting piece of work. It's something that might harm the message at the heart of it, which is, you know, a very layered and very depthful conversation to have. In in this form, it just isn't very good. And it's just a shame. Yeah, it feels almost like a first draft. Uh, should have been, you know, <laughs> gone over again and again and again and kind of smoothed out, removed some things, improved I've, others. And... I've made notes on my phone with more depth than this. <laughs> savage. Savage. Um, but you know what is also savage? The film adaptation of Bones at All. Oh, yes, yes. Released in 2022, just recently. Yeah. I think by the time that this episode comes out, the movie has premiered at multiple film festivals, Venice, yeah. Telluride, uh, New York, London, like pretty much everywhere. And it's coming out in a month's time. So, Lovely. Well, I hate to brag, but we've already seen it. We um, have already seen it. Yeah. We saw I, it. We were the first people to watch it. Were we? Well, yeah. We, yeah, I know that, but I'd like to think that other people know that now as well. We were some of the first people to watch it. We were some of the first people to watch it at the Venice Film Festival. Th- we were sat with people but beyond us being the first people to watch it, we were sat with people that were the first people to fall asleep watching it and also the Very first true. people to cough their way through the film. And we were also the first people to do a lot of things at that festival in Bones and All. We were the first people to watch Bones and All, which is kind of mad. Um, I think that's maybe why it stuck with me. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording and 
it's quite shocking the films that stick with you at that festival compared to what you see in a review. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. This sure. is the power of uh, Luca Guadagnino, man. Luca Guadagnino, who wrote and directed this adaptation of Camille's book, our, our lovely friend Camille. Uh, and it stars Taylor Russell as Maureen, Timothy Chalamet, everyone's favorite, Timothy Chalamet as Lee, Mark Rynance as Sully, and then a whole bunch of other people, including Michael Stuhlbarg, Chloe Sevigny, Andrew Holland, Jessica Harper, and David Gordon Green, of all people. Everyone's favorite uh, Halloween director. Um, Yuan, what are your thoughts on this adaptation of Bones at All? I thought the um, the use of the word adaptation is sinful, because this isn't an adaptation. This is just something different entirely, surely. This is Look a glow this it's like the glow pilot <laughs> after university. It's um, it's kind of mad that uh, obviously we've just spent half an hour talking about the state of the book. Mm-hmm. To pull anything out of that that is beyond mediocre is a Herculean effort. The fact that Guadagnino, a, a director that I'm not overly keen on, I yeah. think Suspiria's fine. I think A Bigger Splash is okay, and mm-hmm. I'm not too keen on Call Me by Your Name. It's like the middling qualities of Timothy Chalamet. I've never been <laughs> convinced by him as a performer. I've never watched something apart from Beautiful Boy where I've thought, wow, that's a really strong performance. He's more than just looks. Um, but no, Bones and All was very, very good. It's a very strong... I, I hate to use the word adaptation because it feels like I'm giving credit to the book. Because <laughs> Guadagnino has written and directed something that feels so far removed from what the book stands for and what the book is representing and what the book actually says with its own text. To the point where this could just be a cannibal film with a coming-of-age story, but they've realised that somebody's written that already and thought, well, we're going to get sued for copyright infringement if we don't adapt it. <laughs> so they've bought up the rights and essentially just rejigged it all because it's very different from the book. It's very, very susceptible to, you know the the changing of the tide essentially it's you know <laughs> bones and all did not come out that long ago i think it was 2015 but the conversation has moved on since then and i think guadagnino does a very good job of realizing that he does a really tremendous job of inflicting new emotions and new sort of messages onto that script despite it being like you know not set in the modern world not set in the old 2022 Feels like you know. I think it's what nineteen eighties, nineties, something like that. It is. It is the early eighties. That's that's yeah. when the book was set as well. Um, the, yeah. the the best way I can describe Bones and All is it. It. it do, I always said that Timothy Chalamet would eventually star in a remake of Badlands, the Terence Malick film. <laughs> this is just Badlands, but people are getting eaten instead of shot. And I suppose that's the biggest compliment I can give it because I quite like Badlands. Oh, Badlands is amazing. That's fantastic. When can we do Malik month? Has Malik written anything? I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't think he has. He hasn't written anything. Maybe one of his books is uh, maybe one of his films is an adaptation of something. But I don't think so. Maybe the, okay. like the new, if you want to do like Pocahontas, we can do the new world. Uh, maybe <laughs> the Thin Red ring. Line actually. I think the Thin Red Line is an. Thin Red Line's a book. Yes, that's a um, book. I imagine Adrian Brody was cut out of that as well. <laughs> For Adrian, for Adrian. Oh, um, Bones and all, man. What a film. I was very positive coming out of the screening initially. But the more the more I removed myself from this movie, the more I've ended up loving it. And I found myself, when we decided to do this, like, three weeks ago, pretty much, I found myself, like, thinking back on the film, 
and its entirety and it made me a little bit emotional i'm not gonna lie just yeah yeah it, it did affect me during the screening but just thinking back on it this is absolutely beautiful this is like i was i was reading the the book and i thought you know what this has like you said this has potential and knowing what I mean, you know, I do really like him. I, we, I did a whole episode with the good old Carson, Timar, um, talking about Call Me By Your Name and gushing over it. But I think he has a very... Not only does he always love the characters in his film, but he, he makes very tactile cinema. Like everything has a strong texture. Everything feels real, lived in, believable. It's artistic. It's gorgeously shot. It's stylized, but it still feels like something that's real. It feels like something that you can touch, that you can smell, that you can feel on your skin. It's just a very great way of framing movies and like using sound to enhance the immersion. But with Bones and all, it did... He did something, like you said, incredible. He took a book that was nothing but wasted opportunities. He saw them and he took them and he, and he just used them to their fullest potential. The setting of 1980s Reagan America, there's so much there that he uses in very subtle ways. Um, the romance at its core, he turns this, he takes this from a coming of age story to a proper romantic road trip like the relationship between maureen and lee is a romance and it's beautiful um and if anything like let's let's just dive into the main theme because we we talked about the book and bones and all the book veganism and maybe pro maybe anti-sex we're still unsure about that um (laughs) but bones and all the film is a piece of queer cinema to me. I don't know how you feel about that, but this feels like this is set in the early '80s in America with the AIDS epidemic, which has just started. And there are so many elements in here that feel very much belonging to queer canon and just and just queer identity. You know, the fact that these cannibals have to stay hidden; they cannot really show who they are. Um, they can smell each other though from far away and just you can tell like when you're with one of them you can just feel it in yourself that they are they're different uh, there's this couple of of of, of hicks <laughs> I don't know if that's offensive I apologize if it is uh, of hillbillies played by rednecks, uh, rednecks. I all of this sounds so offensive I apologize <laughs> to anyone listening if they had Bob Dylan fans I think they're called <laughs> There's two Bob Dylan fans, uh, played by Mark Rylance and David Gordon Green, that are not gay, but the way they talk and their relationship and the way they kind of met each other feels very much like a homosexual relationship. And I don't know how you feel about this reading. I don't think we ever discussed it even at the festival. So I'm curious Mm. if you saw any of these elements, but that's just what stood out to me so strongly especially looking back at the movie after having read the book and, I mean, digested all of it. I, I remember coming out of the um, the screening and you mentioned this and I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And th- th- I was quite nervous to come on and talk about Bones and all because I I thought I would have forgotten the film by now. Like, I, I didn't expect to remember much of it because I don't really remember much of anything these days. That's not a slight on art that's just my memory just <laughs> um, watching a lot and doing a lot yeah I feel it's you. like my trello board is disgusting <laughs> but i i didn't think about 
what you'd said until really it settled in, like when I got back home from from Venice Film Festival, which I attended, and you can, you know, <laughs> got to get that plug in. We saw it first. Um, no, but I I went away and thought about it, and the more I thought about it, it's as a queer coding bones and all is essentially part of a trend that Guadagnino has shown throughout his films, which is an inference rather than a display. It's it's the inference of it in a bigger splash. Obviously it's a bit more important in Call Me By Your Name because that's the core of the plot, but even then it still has elements that are inferences. It still has that shyness, that coyness that shows up in Bones and all, like you mentioned. And that Reaganism aesthetic is really key to that. And it's it's very powerful. It's very I don't think it'll be as touched upon as much as it should be, mainly because Guadagnino was trying to put out several fires elsewhere throughout the plot. Mm-hmm. It's a very important sort of underlining surface. Like you mentioned, David Gordon Green and Michael... Uh, what's his name? Stuhlbarg. Michael Stuhlbarg, who, just a, as a quick off, is having a wonderful few years as just sort of the man at the top. I thought it would have you know, kicked off for him after A Serious Man, but he had to... Bide his time a bit. He did The Shape of Water, and then it was... Oh, yes. There. It was, you know, The Post, Shirley, Your Honor, now this, and Dope Sick as well, which is just kind of... He's finally getting a resurgence. He Well, not even a resurgence. He's finally getting the time he deserves. Um, and considering his one scene in this, it's a lot of big names for just one scene, like Chloe Sevigny, mm. Michael Stuhlbarg. I think Andre Holland shows up as well. Yeah, he plays the father um, of Maureen. Uh, yeah. Jessica Harper plays Jessica the Harper grandmother. Is... Jessica Harper is just so brilliant. I know people say, like, oh, she dropped off after Suspiria. She didn't really do much. She's she's in a couple of Woody Allen films. She did Shock Treatment. Yeah. She's, she's shown up in stuff that really matters to people that would consider themselves fans of her. And I do consider myself a fan of Jessica Harper's work. She just cements that so well in Bones and all. Where it's you know obviously the main theme is going to be that of cannibalism and the the reflection that comes from that and the mm-hmm. coming of age relationship to it and and that's kind of why I thought it was a bit like Badlands it's it's an on the road movie without the sort of buddy mentality it's a very tense survival type film where you know I don't want to compare it to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kids is on another level but it has those remnants to it it has that sort of they're on the run they're not particularly being hunted down per se like you know, like Badlands and Butch Cassidy show, but mm-hmm. they know that if they keep moving then that element begins. And I think Guadagnino does well to hint at that and he does well to keep it alive when, you know, there is a brutalism to Bones and All's adaptation that is severely lacking in the book. But to go back to that queer coding, I think it's a very consistent element of Guadagnino's uh, directing and a part yeah. of his plot. I think it's, it's best represented here more than mm-hmm. anywhere else. Um, I think, you know, my my d- complete not disregard but lack of care for Guadagnino's work came from just not being particularly interested in his plot and this is probably <laughs> the strongest plot I've seen from him, I think it's very very good um, but again it's li- like like we said earlier it's kind of shocking what stuck with me after the festival, I, it's the films that you don't expect to stick with you that do stick with you and I was looking at his filmography before we started recording and it was like I remember such key moments of a bigger splash Mm-hmm. I remember Tilda Swinton driving into town. I remember Ralph Fiennes looking through record collections, and it's it's shocking that I remember those little moments because usually I just don't remember those. And it's I, I don't know that, that must have some sort of impact on my brain because Bones and all, I I remember the little things, the tiny little elements of it, 
I remember the framing from the the bus as it wheels out, and you see Mark Rylance stood there, and he's got his little hat on. Mm-hmm. All to, to be honest, all the Mark Rylance stuff I just remember so so clearly because he is phenomenal. He's like, having he's a blast. Unbelievable! It's so nice to see him do something like against typecast, where it's he plays those kind of not villains, but kind of like creepy weirdo outsiders like he did on Bridge of Spies to an extent but he feels mm. competent there it's just so nice to see him play something that's completely against what he normally does which is essentially a hero a very quiet hero like the Trial of Chicago 7 or the outfit it's unbelievable like I'm just so happy that he's getting that opportunity and it's I don't want to say oh it's an Oscar worthy performance but he could definitely like this is his sort of carrying torch type moment um, which is difficult to do considering he's up against some really big actors obviously we mentioned Michael Stilbar and Chloe Sevigny with those one scene roles but then Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet unbelievable, really yeah. really solid stuff from them and they do absolutely monumentally well in displaying a lot of the coding that Gonalino brings to a script, a lot of the influences and messages that come through his work and it's it's all very well kept and well paced and well timed unlike the book which is just why i'm so shocked by not not the decision to adapt it but how well an adaptation of a bad book can come like you know i've always heard people say oh the book's always better than the film absolutely not there is not a chance you could say that anymore once you've seen bones and all (laughs) not a chance this will go down in history as one of the best uh, book to film adaptations uh, yeah, for very it's, good it's reasons yeah. Um, but yes I, I remember w- w- speaking of the cast um, like you mentioned so many scene stealing performances like definitely say everyone who's in one scene steals that sad, sad scene um, but I went on records last year on Clappercast uh, the Clapper podcast where we talked about Escape Room Tournament of Champions and I went on record saying Taylor Russell is fantastic in this film. She gives it her all, and I think she will be phenomenal in whatever she does next. I don't even remember if I name dropped Bones and all. I don't even know if she if I, I don't remember if I knew she was going to be in this film. Um, but watching the movie, like she ended up winning the best newcomer, best rising star at the Venice Film Festival. Absolutely well deserved. I think she's great like to be honest it kind of pains me a little bit and there's understand why they're doing it it pains me that the marketing is selling this as timothy chalamet's movie because timothy chalamet is gonna get the, the young girls in the butts in the seats um but that's that's it's not his movie and even though he's great in this like i have to say probably i guess the power of guadagnino the second best performance of his after call me by your name um everything was both of them relatively close to one another i think he get something different from Chalamet compared to all the other directors. Um, and but, but Taylor Russell, like, she's she's fantastic. I think what Maureen was lacking in the book was a real sense of agency. Like, she feels a bit passive. Like, she's constantly like, oh, someone's helping me out. Hey, this is happening. Oh, whoops, they die. I'll just move on. And she moves on. And hey, this other person's helping me out. Like, it's very repetitive. But in this one, like she feels like a real person, like a real character, with feelings, with emotions, with contradictions. There's none of that nonsense of her 
you know, like eating everyone that she's with. That kind of actually plays with the queer codedness of the movie. The fact that it opens up. I remember talking about this with a friend who saw it at the festival, where there's basically this sleepover that she escapes to. The father doesn't want her to go to a sleepover, and that's also against. I'm so many small tangents, but like this, the the gender reversal of father to mother and vice versa. Like here, she starts off with the father and she ends up looking for her mother, which is different from the book, but. Uh, she ends up sneaking up to this to this sleepover, and there's this sense of intimacy between her and this other girl when they're under this table, just chatting with one another. And this friend of mine was like, "Oh, I thought it was going to be like a lesbian love scene or something," but then, like Taylor Russell just bites her finger clean off, <laughs> which is glorious. And that's what I knew. Like, this is five minutes into the movie, and that's where I said, "Yes." This is everything that I wanted from this adaptation. This is going so well. Please don't mess it up, Luca. And it didn't. Like, everything in here is an improvement in terms of characters, in terms of horror, which kind of ties into what we talked about earlier and a question that I want to ask you, because the book, you know, like, they eat up everything. It's like seven minutes they can eat up a girl. This cannibals, impressive. That's that's like a competition, eating competition. Um achievement we could say but what i like in the book is that the cannibalism is very raw it's very real um it's very graphic without indulging too much in the violence like you see enough and what you know holds on these shots of people just kind of like biting into the flesh for like a couple seconds enough for you to kind of be grossed out by it but not enough to feel exploitative or like as or like a full-blown horror film um which kind of ties I want to connect this with the scene that we mentioned of Michael Stuhlbarg and David Gordon Green, which is the scene where they talk about, you know, the title of the movie, which is a scene that's absent in the book. And it is a standout moment in the film, but just bones and all. That's something that they've grown to do. Or like, I think Michael Stuhlbarg's character, uh, that's something that he can do, but that David Gordon Green has to prepare himself for you know like i'm getting there yeah. slowly but surely and that's like the halloween series <laughs> like the halloween series um but that's the idea that you know you're a cannibal yes you eat flesh but you can also eat everything like the entirety of of, of, of the other person yeah what do you think about this title just in general like we, we didn't touch on it in the book but just because yeah. that's more literal in that sense we could say mm-hmm. But with the film, how do you interpret it? It's kind of like eating the garnish on top of a steak. Um, <laughs> no, it's for the film, I think it's because a lot of Guadagnino's writing here is taking the good bits of the book. Because there are a couple of good bits that are just kind of squashed down into what we've talked about for the past half an hour. Um, and I think that Bones and All Seen, the actual reference to the title, is more because to actually show that would look pretty ridiculous yes it would look pretty it would look like it's jumped the shark to say oh they eat the bones as well and i think it's one of the big big things that the book is troubled by and it's the power of alluding it is the power of alluding to a problem or a message Mm -hmm. the book is very clear and very clear cut and very simple with what it wants to say and why it says it there is no subtext as the great garth marenghi once said subtext is for cowards that doesn't apply here you can't not have subtext you've got to have something that the yeah. audience can yeah. be trusted with guadagnino does that a lot i think that scene with michael stilberg for his 
as, as kind of brief as it is, it's only a couple of minutes that he's got on the screen. Um, it sets up so much about the consequences that the main characters are facing. It sets up what we won't see. It sets up what we may see, and it sets up the allusions to the rest of the film so perfectly. It's such a, an important scene that actually moves the story, not just further along, but away from the negative aspects of the book, shall we put them. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very clear indicator that Guadagnino has gone, okay, this was a bit too far. This was something that just doesn't make sense to show. It, this is, it's, it's, it's tell, don't show. You know, it, obviously we've always been told show, don't tell. There are parts of it that need to be refrained from, not because it might be too brutal or too violent, but because it just would be too much. Mm-hmm. Too much in the sense that there is already so much going on that you don't need that extra step. Great if it needs to be there. It's like sort of a narrative solution. You don't need to show it because you can get bloody and violent and gory without all of that and actually make this a proper horror, which it is. It feels very tremendously horrific. And to do that with the uh, without the actual bones and all aspect, which was the main focus of the book, is a rather obvious telling mm-hmm. of the fact that it just wasn't needed. You know, cannibalism at its core is very horrifying. Films have shown that time yes. and time again. You do not need to expand on that because it is a constant horror. It's quite, quite grim in the same sense that murder is horrible and it's quite, quite grim. It's always going to have that shock value if it's done right. And Guadagnino makes it a very active, and it, it, I imagine he's tried very hard to make that active choice, but he's managed to make it so consistent and has persevered in, in making it something that feels quite ominous. He's managed mm-hmm. to take the title of a book and make it ominous with without losing the necessity of it being its title and having an impact on the plot, you know? It's always there. It's always lingering over. And obviously it's mentioned at the end of the film when war Timmy spows out. Um, oh. but you, never, you never you never see that. You never, you know, it's alluded to, it's mentioned, and it feels quite consequential when it is actually mentioned again, rather than being just sort of part and parcel the experience of as a whole. You know, you, you get a lot more from it being oh, that's something that could happen and never seeing it than you do with it's happening every time. That's just the norm. Because it just makes it sound a bit silly. Like you said, it's like she she ate an entire babysitter when she was two. <laughs> that just, you know, it, you, you've got to think within the structure of the real world, you know? Unless you go full-blown, surreal, absurd, whatever, but that's not yeah. what the book is. <laughs> I've, I've seen a couple of people refer to this as magic realism, and I don't actually think they know what magic realism is. I think I called it magic realism earlier on, and I'd like to retract that remark. <laughs> I, I can't remember, but I, I think people call it magic realism because I imagine you know, magic realism also implies that you could eat an entire person, including... How many bones do people have? 226? It's a lot. It is actually, it's a, it, it's a lot. It's that, that's in quotes on the next medical journal. How many bones? It's a lot. It's a lot. I'm sure it's 226. That's like one of the few things I remember. How many? 206, bones? yeah. Oh, I've got, well, I've got 20 extra, so I'd like to see them try and eat me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, Guadagnino has made a lot of resourceful changes here. It's really quite crucial to the survival of this film. Um, Obviously, like you said, you mentioned Taylor Russell and the prediction over her being like the next big thing, and it's quite rightly put. I think she's she's done her work in sort of the cool face of bad movies. She did Dr. Bird, and she did Hot <laughs> Air, 
And for the three people that have seen both of those films, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, and now she's reaping the rewards of a fairly successful double bill of horror films, and she did Waves as well, obviously. Really, um, Waves, yeah. She, of course, did Pants on Fire, the Disney Plus film, uh, with Br- Bradley Stephen Perry, <laughs> who was, you know, dark days. But Taylor Russell is definitely, I, I don't like making predictions, but I, like this is the one where I feel absolutely certain of it. She's on track to do absolutely brilliant films after this does not feel like a star that you can diminish. I remember saying to you that that was like the best newcomer performance and that it should have won the award for it, but obviously it didn't. I've no doubt that this is like the first step in a series of big films that mm-hmm. you need. You know, people think, oh, well, how did Timothy Chalamet get his start? Well, it's like, you know, he also did a bit of hard work in the start. He did little bit spots in Interstellar and Lady Bird and then built up from there. You didn't get a feeling for his first proper film until Call Me By Your Name, but of course... You know, that was astronomically huge for him. Taylor Russell, Bones and All, feels quite similar for her in that regard, where it's... Yeah. She's done a couple of small films, she's had some bit parts, she's had a couple of supporting roles and even a lead role. Now it feels like it's getting expansive. Now she's at that next level where people are starting to pick up on her as a household name rather than just a name that appears in films. Mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet is, like it or hate it, a massive, massive name. And to have first billing over him is kind of a clear indicator of where you're headed. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the 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 supporting cast that surrounds it, I mean, obviously we didn't mention, like, Francesca Scorsese. Is she bit. actually in the film, though? Because I, I saw her in the cast, but she's not. I, I'm just going off what Letterboxd is saying here. That's my source. Letterboxd lies, because I was I was looking up, like, I was reading some, some other people as well, but they were like, is she in the film? She's not. I feel, I don't know if there's like cut footage maybe of her. Uh... Letterboxd lies. You're telling me that the, the website with the top three reviews totaling a whole nine lines on Bones and All is yep. a bad website for a user yep. base of that size? Goodness me. Sadly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty grim, but that's, that's by the by. I will have to do another offshoot podcast where we talk about the state of film criticism again to discuss that one. But as far as Bones and all goes, it's it's rather telling that Guadagnino has cast somebody that has, you know, I, th- I think to, to some degree it's because she's been cast in horror films. You know, she's got that experience of quite gory material, quite bloody violent stuff. But then to surround that lead role with real, real, like, stellar quality. Like, you have Oscar winners, you have really dependable supporting characters that are happy to be a bit player when they've had leading roles before. It strikes of a quality that's quite rare, and at the same time, you know, it it hasn't blown me away. I thought it was really good. It's like I probably won't watch it again, but it's really good. I just I, I can't quite put my finger on what I, I I don't think there's anything I dislike about it. I just think some of it is you know fine. I think it it has its highs and lows, mm-hmm. but it's overall it's a very good project that will no doubt be. Adapted horribly by Timothy Chalamet fans who swoon over the man currently feasting on a man in a forest. They're the real cannibals. The real cannibal are the friends we made along the way. Hey, um, Still, it's been years since that came out. I still don't know where that quote actually originally from. I don't know, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, a lot, a lot to unpack there that you said. Um, mm-hmm. But to kind of bring it, uh, bring it back to, to the original question... Or just the title bones and all. Um, yeah, I, I agree with what you said. And 
I kind of see it as well as something maybe uh, even more romantic, you could say. More I mean, yeah. in one way, you could see it in a more graphic sense, you know, because um, again, similarly to the book in that regard, the relationship between Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell between Lee and Maureen is not consummated in a in a classic sense, you could say, um, but it is lived through their shared cannibalistic experiences. Um, and again, in terms of like gender bending things, like the uh, the scene in the book where Tim, where uh, Lee kind of flirts with uh, an annoying girl at a at a what is it like a carny thing, like a carnival? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he takes her away, and that's, that's where he eats her up in seven minutes. Like in this, it's a it's a guy, it's a man, and there's there's this whole like scene where he's receiving oral or something like that. Like it it, it goes it goes for it, and it's it's impressive. Like damn damn Luca, go go for those gay scenes. Um, but again, the idea of bones and all, like you could see it in that in that queer sense of like you know fully committing to kind of not shying away from who you are and having a full sexual act, you could say. Yeah. But also I see it as the more romantic, you know, I I think it's also something that they talk about in the film, maybe marginally, but the idea that by eating everything of a person, that person will forever be a part of you. And that's something that personally speaking, at least in terms of cannibal fiction, that's something that has always fascinated me. And that's something that I've been working on. Like I've been writing a script on this basically for over a year at this point. Um, it's a romantic cannibal tale, and I remember reading. Uh, you look at what a you know, cannibal movie. It's like fuck, oh fuck, it's coming for me. And then I read the book, and I was like, ah oh, no, it's different. I'm safe. And then I watched the movie. I was like, no, <laughs> damn it, he did it, he did it. Um, the two stories share very similar themes, but that's something that probably that's why I ended up loving this film, especially over time. It's just this idea that, you know, it doesn't go for the for the shame that's present constantly throughout the book by Camille D'Angelis. He makes it very romantic, very tender and emotional, like this feeling of fully appro- fully becoming part of someone else. Ah, oh, it's it's lovely. And it all leads to to the ending of the of the film, which is heartbreaking like consider the book that we talked about it's like oh uh lee and maureen are like hey we killed the grandpa everything's good and let's just you know have sex oh whoops she eats him up that's it which is very anticlimactic not earned i'd even say but then you get to the film bones and all and first of all there's no grandpa relationship sully mark rydance's character is just an asshole very creepy, very uncomfortable, a stalker who ends up finding Maureen after she kind of tells him to fuck off. Uh, and and it all leads to this climactic encounter that maybe leans a bit too much in horror tropes, you could say. That, that's kind of what I didn't like about the movie. There's like a couple jump scares that I could have done without, to be fair. Um, but that whole fight ends with Lee getting fatally wounded and what does Maureen do after he asks it as well? Like, the only thing they can do after they've been living together, like, she eats him, bones at all. Like, she eats him in its entirety, which is gruesome, but also so 
tragic and so sad. And there's this song, and I was obsessed with this song like a couple of days after listening to it, and it's original, which annoys me because I want to get it out of my head and I need to listen to its entirety. I've been looking at the lyrics, like it's an original song for the film. But basically the final lyrics say, uh, for a minute, you made it feel like home. And it's just those lyrics. It's like, oh. And that's where he takes, basically what I you know, kind of like as a closing statement, he took a book about, you know, uh, veganism and uh, coming of age, whatever, and expanded upon it to tell a story of first love, that first love that will forever be a part of you, that you will never forget. Going back to it, thinking about it will bring pain, but also joy. The joy that, for a minute, you made it feel like home. And that's just like when I had this realization last month, just thinking back on it, that's when I was like, I'm just thinking about it right now, I'm getting shivers. Like, fuck, man. <laughs> like, look, you did it. You beautiful bastard. Ah. It's an experience that, like like you've just described there, it's kind of the the intimacy of that goes beyond just, oh, it's a cannibal piece. It is the having it part of someone's life for the rest of it. It's very, very depthful and it's very well explored and i think for people that have had that intimacy and that sort of feeling it's very very well done i mean that won't go into the details but you you <laughs> you know what i'm talking about with with regard to to me and all that um and it did hit very differently than i would have expected it to i think because of those experiences and that is a great reward for Guadagnino to to see a filmmaker understand that aspect when you know especially considering the the amount of dreck that comes from the occasional not rom-com but sort of dramatic piece with the relationship at the core of it it mm. just missed entirely and i think to have such a, a genuinely beautiful message at the core of this film is one of the best bits of writing from this year I do think that I really do think that Guadagnino has in part got something in Bones and All that is some of the best script writing of the year um, and it's not just through the sort of general remarks that he makes, the general dialogue or the scene setting but the the imagery it conjures and the message it gives like you've just spoken of there which I, I won't touch upon again because I'll, I'll just mumble through and not remember where I am and then break down in tears <laughs> but what what he presents is so strong and surprisingly broad, yet at the same time extremely specific, which is really just scares me more than anything else about this film. Right, really, it's just worrying that he, he manages to hit it on the head like that. And in such a beautiful way as well, where it, it contrasts all the real horror that comes before it, you know, the mm-hmm. encounter with Sully and how brutal it gets, which is... um really quite graphic, like genuinely good God, but blonde struggle to get a, an 18 rating. <laughs> how would Guadagnino manage this one? Um, obviously his influence over Suspiria come through in that portion of, I imagine he had some gallons of blood left over to use and just thought fire it in there lads. Um, but to do so sets the scene for, he literally paints a picture with the sort of bloody aftershock and it's very powerful, it's very moving, and it's it's not many films that can move like that. Um, it all comes down to writing. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you put on the performances, that anybody could manage the depth of that, because it is that strong. Um, yeah, it, it's 
it's a particularly strong moment. I think it's it's best to leave it that way because, again, just to go back to the subtext point, it is all about subtext. It's the matter of managing a note of influence earlier on. It's called foreshadowing, and Bones and all the books should have tried that. Um, but we're asking is, too much, too much from we're her. Far too much. Subtext is for cowards, after all. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's really amazing how simple a change it is to just hint at something rather than develop it fully in one part of the book and just go again later on. Yeah, it's rather telling what it, it's just. It's simple storytelling structure. It is basics. It is not giving your audience all the information at the exact moment they need it. It's letting it linger, letting the characters know more than we know. It's This is simple stuff that's been done for decades, centuries in the case of books and stuff. Yeah, The fact that it doesn't happen in Bones and All the Book is shocking. The fact that it does happen in the movie is even more shocking, because I imagine Guadagnino has read this and thought, right, okay, I had a script like this anyways, we'll buy up the rights add some characters in and then sort out the story because yeah. it really did need sorting and it, it gets sorted very well um it's very moving it's very graphic and i think it's you know I, again it's going to be one of those films that people misrepresent for the sake of timothy chalamet and their twitter feud with anybody that says they don't love him and it's a shame because you know <laughs> the the relationship at the core of Bones and All isn't really the point of it, it's the aftershock of it, that is where the, the nail is hit on the head and it's a shame that so many people are going to go, oh I'd love to go on a road trip with Timothy Chalamet and eat people <laughs> when the real message is keeping someone that's not part of your sphere of influence as a part of you, which is just very, very strong it shows a lot of Shows a lot of intimacy in the on the part of the character, and then there's a layer of regret to it as well. You know where, you know the the right the right people have regret, and I think it does a lot to humanize a character that would be seen as particularly villainous in in the wrong setting. You know, cannibal is oh, particularly yes. a protagonist, of course, but to show regret through a character like that and like the father as well shows a, a sophistication that I didn't expect. It shows something that only comes through in a contemplative moment and there are plenty of those in bones and all where you see something that feels quite divine quite calm and then you remember that these people are saddled with this problem and that they've got to keep eating people and all these new problems come through and confirm but it doesn't take away from every moment that's like that it only takes away from a couple and the, the impact it has there is that guadagnino is then able to really shore up what he actually wants to say about cannibals of this, which is not you know, don't eat meat. It's it's more keep a part of keep someone a part of your life for that segment. And I think he does that really well with Charlemagne and Russell. Yeah. What a film, man. What a film. Good Which stuff. leads yeah. really good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I quite enjoyed was that the day we got attacked by wasps? Or was that the day after? It was many days. I want to say it was after, though. <laughs> that was the day where we had to rush to get to the screening, and I'm glad oh, we managed yeah. to get it. You in. abandoned your child. Like yes. when you when you Daniel Day Lewis your way across on a ferry. I'm like, I'll get a ferry to get to, to Chalamet but I need left, left an Englishman seen. that can speak half a word of Italian in a queue with Italian just went, uh Bongiorno, uh Uno Ticchetto and away I went. <laughs> uno Ticchetto. Mm. Oh man. Yeah, yeah, that, that was memorable day, memorable viewing experience. It was a and, lot of fun. 
Um, it was fun. Yeah. I cannot wait to watch this movie again as well, to be honest. I can't um, wait to hear about you watching it again. I'm a busy man. I've got <laughs> like 30 different screeners for films. I know all this shit. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> which leads me into one final question, then, which is, I mean, I, I already know the answer, but you yeah. one, which is best, the book or the film of Bones you know, Nick, um, I'm glad you asked that because I'm quite <laughs> unsure. Um, I would say that the film... It's better mm. than the book, just by a thin margin, mainly because the film is actually good. Um, and the book is not. Yeah, I think it's 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 not just that the film is good, like, on its own. As a standalone piece, if we weren't comparing it to the book, it is just a good film. Oh, yes. And even more impressed that they've managed to get a good film out of it, considering the lack of quality in the adapted piece. It's, make no mistake, like, you know, I've not read thousands of books like I've seen films, but I've I've read enough to know what good storytelling is. Mm. And that sounds very big-headed, but it kind of has to be because you can tell that Bones and All is not a well-written story because of just kind of the appeal it has. It feels very much like it appeals to an audience that is younger than me, I guess, is the trade-off. But then why are you writing a book about cannibalistic intentions and gory, gratifying behaviour if you want to appeal to that and you've got such a wide message to have that appeals to everyone it just gets filtered down from there it's not a good book and I think that actually does elevate the film somewhat to being better than it actually is um, because you know I, I finished Bones and All and I thought it was pretty good the film and then it was after reading the book that my first thought was wow Bones and All is a really good film <laughs> um, so uh, there, there is a layer of me being really impressed by Guadalino now on mm-hmm. that film which I didn't have before I read the book so I would recommend you read the book if you like the film, mainly because you can then say, oh my god, I really like that film. Yes, 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 yes. I completely agree. Like, Guadagnino did it. He made something beautiful, um, touching, emotionally resonant. I think this will be... Unlike the, the book, which is, like, it's so hard. Like, we, we try to talk about the book for, like, 40 to 50 minutes. It's so hard to properly dive into it. And, and understand, not even just trying to understand what the writer was going for, but just like getting something out of it. You get to the end of it where you just feel hollow, and that's the yeah. opposite of the film. Like the film leaves you with so many emotions, so many things to think about. I think there is there are going to be some great articles analyzing the romance, analyzing the queer themes, even all, the, all even that all the gender swaps and maybe even a feminist angles, considering that the mother is the one that's locked up in an asylum. And who's a cannibal? Um, so much to unpack here. Uh, so many feelings to feel. Which always is always great. Sometimes I feel like I'm dying inside, but then it was something like this, and it just makes me feel alive. And it reminds me of the past and so many things that happened. And it's in a way bad, in other ways good. You know, it's 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 good to know to never forget. Uh, but yes, this is it for this episode of. Death adaptation, as always, a lovely, lovely time. Where can our listeners find you, Yuan? In hell. <laughs> eh, no, they can, well, actually, speaking of hell, they can find me on Twitter um, at Yuangledo. That's where you can get me on Twitter, and you can get me on Letterboxd at the same name without the at at the front of my name. Um, you can also get my work on uh, Cult Following, Clapper, Daily Star, The Geek Show, Narc Magazine, any volume. I've got my own podcast. Don't listen to this podcast at DLTT Pod yes. on Twitter. 
where Nick will make several appearances, I imagine. Mandatory. I'm excited. Um, you, you better be. You're into some of the best episodes. Um, and what else am I on? What else am I doing these days? I think that's about Just it. Surviving, I've, living. I've stretched myself that thin that any day that I don't have a sincere mental breakdown with the amount of work I do is a great success. <laughs> so I imagine that that'll take place inevitably on Twitter because everything else takes place on Twitter. It is a hellscape app. I love it. It is. It is wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NickyGrind97 and there there's links to everything that I do. You know, it's short films, videos, letterbox reviews, clapper articles. Maybe I should start adding a link to my link tree for a cold following as well. I've got Ooh, a yes. couple ideas for more articles about video games <laughs> to write about. Oh man, I've been playing too many video games, so I have to, I have to kind of externalize and justify this thing. <laughs> um, and of course you can follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram, Death Adaptation Pod and Death Adaptation Pod, respectively. Stay tuned because next week, the schedule is a bit messed up, but next week we're celebrating Halloween and we're joined by the great Carson Timar to talk about the haunting of Hill House. So stay tuned for that. We hope you had a lovely time listening to this and we hope you have a fabulous day. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>